Hello and welcome to Mikey Pod. This is episode one, 201. Ah, I keep getting that wrong because we're in the 200s now. Uh, yes, welcome to the show. It's December 18th, 2015. And uh, I have a slight cold. So if you hear a little something, something happening, that's what it is. Today's guest, Carol J. Adams. I'm super excited about this. Um, I've been a fan of her book for quite some time. I first heard of her in uh, 1990, 1991. Uh, with the band Consolidated, which I don't know how many of you remember, um, they were, ah, their album, Friendly Fascism, it's my first introduction to uh, like the idea of intersectional, intersectionalism, is that the right word? Um, the idea that all of these movements are together with their, tr- oh, don't even, don't even get me started. Well, I'm going to end the, with a track that I, that I, we'll talk about that at the end, but uh, I think we should have a uh, moment <laughs> of listening let me set the same scene for you. It's 7.22 a.m. I woke up early, especially early today, to get myself pumped and ready to do this podcast so I could get it up today. Um, looks like Fridays are the new podcast day. Um, as we get into the new year, I'm going to start... Um, I'm, I've been putting up lots of content. Uh, this podcast, I've been doing diff- two different types of videos on YouTube. Uh, Snapchat cooking... <laughs> uh, which are fun, and uh, some vlogs. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So uh, I'm going to figure out a schedule so I can do each of these things on a set day each week. And I feel like this is going to move to Fridays, uh, like today. So that's enough about that. Um, I want to listen to the track, The Sexual Politics of Meat, which you'll hear us refer to in the interview uh, before I decided to just start the show with it. So you'll hear that decision being made between me and Carol. And uh, this is consolidated from the album Friendly Fascism, Sexual Politics of Meat. Not only have we objectified animals, but in objectifying them, we take what we 
the rest out. We leave their death out and we take their bodies. We leave the images of their death out, but take the meaning of meat and apply it to women. Apply it to women. Carol J. Adams is an activist and author of The Sexual Politics of Meat, which the New York Times called a Bible of the vegan community. And she is joining me right now. Thank you so much for joining me, Carol. It's my pleasure. Um, So I have to tell you the first, my first introduction to the book, The Sexual Politics of Meat, was when I was a fledgling vegetarian in probably 1993 or so. Or wait, could it? It couldn't have been that long ago because the oh, book yeah. was. Oh yeah, it was no. 1990, right? That the book yeah. was written. Um, the album uh, "Friendly Fascism" by right. Consolidated had um, a reference to your book. There's a whole track. Right. I, is that your voice on the yes. uh, track? Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my my 20 year old self is thrilled about that. <laughs> <laughs> I have met a few people who've come to the work through Consolidated, and they are then mesmerized to hear my voice, which, of course, Consolidated did a few things with it, it, it during in the track. But, um, well, you know, it is a great story. If I could just start there. The oh, book sure. has been out for more than two weeks before one of the members of the band contacted my publisher and said they wanted to record me. And that's when I learned that I had missed several generations of rock. I did not know what industrial rock was. Uh And they came to Dallas uh, for a concert. And the first thing they did was, and I I joined them for the concert, was uh, gave me earplugs. (laughs) Was that at your request or did they just assume you would want them? No, it's because the music's so loud. It can hurt your ears. Yeah, yeah. And um, then they taped me, uh, I read from Sexual Politics of Meat, and the other thing I read from was my talk at the sort of now famous March for Animals in 1990, the first March for Animals, and I was one of the uh, speakers at that. So I I loved that. And then when when the disc arrived, 
uh, we were listening to it, and my five-year-old son said, those are whales. He wasn't excited that I was on a track <laughs> music, uh, but he was pretty excited that I was uh, part of a track that had whale songs on them. Uh, so- yeah, they used those whale sounds. So that, that album... It opened my mind to so many things because the way they they um, incorporate, which you do in your book, um, feminism with um, animal rights and homophobia and racism and all that type. The, that, that was my first introduction to how all of those things were um, connected. And then, of course, to your book, which we shall talk about today. <laughs> well, and just for any of your listeners, the uh, they've given me permission. The track is on my website. So uh, people, if they have not heard it, can go to my website and hear it. Uh, awesome. In fact, I may just play it on the podcast, though. Uh, I'm not sure if I have to get permission from them for that. No, I, it, I, it's fine because they've given me permission, carte blanche. Oh, you know what? Let's uh, let's. Uh, when I assemble this podcast, I'll put that song at the beginning. So okay. we'll just assume that's, all the listeners have now heard it. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So done. Like we just did a whole like time travel thing somehow. We, we've gone <laughs> forward and backwards. <laughs> so the 25th anniversary of the book was just uh, in October. Is that right? The uh, the new edition was released in October. Um, this is the uh, 2015 is the 25th anniversary year of the book. It it does not seem possible. And the sad thing is, is it's even more relevant. I'm the author of a book that I hope will someday not be relevant. What kind of, I mean, most authors want to become more relevant. I, I'm in the very difficult position that I wish my book no longer mattered. And it seems to matter even more. And that's sort of a, a tragedy for me as an activist. But I'm grateful as an author that this unique approach to thinking about these issues, or it's not as unique now, but that this this approach still speaks to people. And I think it speaks to people because we're living in such an oppressive world. Mm. We want to make sense of that. I guess one thing I'd like to say is that when the book came out, animal rights activists were so excited about it. And I think the reason was because it helped to make sense of why we care so much about animals and that this caring actually is related to um, progressive politics. It, It provided a template for helping to explain that these are all connected Mm -hmm. because our world sees these as very discreet subjects and doesn't want us to to make connections. One of the things that I've noticed just in my um, being outspoken for animals um, is that people who have otherwise progressive politics are perhaps the angriest at me when I try to point out uh, animal issues are. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think this is often a problem for liberals as well. I think the left, well, the left is burdened by several misconceptions. First, that human consciousness is unique, and so we define ourselves and this sort of radical human consciousness that that. Uh, progressives believe in seems to demarcate us from other animals. 
And, you know, say the feminist movement, the progressive feminist movement had a, had a, a pin that said feminism is the radical notion that women are human. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to lift up human. I don't want to move women from one side of a human animal uh, boundary to the other side and just say, oh, yeah, well, let's forget about everybody else who's over there still. I think the human animal boundary is problematic. Um, I think progressives have trouble because they enjoy eating dead animals. They don't want to give up their stash, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so suddenly we're saying that something they've seen as a pleasure is actually a privilege. And a privilege is hiding behind political commitments that are retrograde, um, regressive. Uh, And in fact, I coined this term retrograde humanism. I laugh and say that I have done more to get people to care about homelessness by being a vegan than anything. And this is ironic because I volunteer at a homeless day shelter that my partner is the director of. But, you know, you meet people and the minute you say you're a vegan, they say, well, what about the homeless? And they're holding on to this either or dialectic. Well, you can either care about humans or you can care about animals. Well, in this really disturbed world that we're in now, one of the best things we can do for human beings even if we don't want to appeal to their self-interest, is to care about animals. The, the state of the environment, the state of people's health, the, all of those, and even the joy of eating great food, um, those are all related to caring about animals. But in, a, in this very uh, limited viewpoint that's developed, it's like, oh, if you care for animals, you aren't helping the homeless, you aren't helping battered women. Suddenly, people who don't do anything for the homeless or battered women mm-hmm. care about them because we've asked them to start thinking about decisions. So let me back up and say one other thing. Okay. Until we go into a room, until a vegan enters a room, everybody there is simply an eater. Oh. When a vegan enters the room, we have now caused them to see themselves as meat eaters. They, their self-definition has now changed because they are aware of our decision not to do what they're doing. And this makes them uneasy. And if they blame us for this consciousness, or if we're the problem, or if we're the ones who are inconsistent morally, then they don't have a problem. So I think often when progressives, feminists, leftists respond to us, they're responding at a very personal level that's not thought out. Mm-hmm. And um, at that moment when, when they respond that way, it might not be the most opportune moment to help sort of uh, liberate their theoretical understandings. We've got to help them kind of overcome their own nervousness and, and, and sense of shame or guilt that they're feeling. Um, and they want to blame us for those feelings. Right. Oh, man. So many things. This, I had this experience when I was reading your book, and I'm having it now, when you'll mention a concept like the idea of, of not making the distinction between humans and animals is ter- in terms of lifting up, you know, the, 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> I get stuck in trying to like explain these things, but I'm also having this moment of, yes, that's an excellent point. Like, uh, and the idea of the either or, which people always come to me with. Well, don't you like I or just recently I saw someone make a comment on Facebook, which is probably not the best place for me to be spending so much time <laughs> with these uh, conversations. But that, well, I'm going to let's get the the humans of the world better first and then I'll worry about animals. Right. But I mean, so this is the fallacy here. I have never met a vegan who says I can't, I can't be vegan and working for domestic violence victims. I can't be vegan and helping the homeless. Vegans are out there every day working against poverty, working against hunger, working against domestic violence. We don't, you know, we're not wearing badges that say, hey, I'm a vegan, but I care about humans. We're just out doing it because once you become a vegan, you don't have to think through what you're eating. You know what you're eating. There's this saying, this Buddhist saying, you don't have to, you know, keep carrying the canoe once you get to the river. People <laughs> think they have to just, that it's, it would take so much work to be vegan, they can't do that and care about the world. Well, you're not caring about the world if you're eating dead animals at this point. I mean, we just have to acknowledge it. When you've got people as diverse as as uh, Bill Gates and Arnold Schwarzenegger mm -hmm. uh, talking about, you know, cutting down on eating dead animals, they figured out something that vegans have been talking about for a long time. But it's a, it's, I'm sorry, I get I get all excited too and distracted. But this either or thing is false. Any vegan activist knows it's false. Any non-vegan activist. It's comforting for them to believe it's true because then they don't have to change. Mm -hmm. All of these conversations are conversations that get evoked because the awareness of our decision to change says something to the meat eater mm -hmm. and the non-vegan. Do they have to change? And as long as we're the issue, they're not the issue and they don't have to change. Right. And the 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 idea that, that it's, a task to be vegan is really hard for me to understand. You know, now that I've done it, I, I mean, I, I guess I can see from the other point of view, because when I wanted to go vegan, it, I was like, what am I going to eat? And, and I got really wrapped up in the what ifs and, and how am I going to, but now that I do it, I'm just eating. Like I just eat three ish times a day and I just make a different choice each time. You know, it's pretty easy. Right. <laughs> right. We're not carrying the canoe anymore. Right. We're, you know, we're, we're just in it. And something funny happened uh, in, in early October. I was up in Grand Rapids. They were having a vegan pop-up bakery that I went to. And I was given some special treats when people found out, you know, it was me. And uh, very sweet, uh, these incredible spinach uh, scones, spinach, spinach cheddar scones and some donuts and parfaits and when I got back to where I was staying, who was a friend of my son, she said, well, Carol, kind of wherever you go, do, do people just throw great vegan food at you? And I stopped and thought about it and I said, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's great. 
I've just come back from Vienna and London. I cannot tell you what the great food I had. It's not difficult to be vegan. Though I was asked on Sunday by someone, she said I was in Tucson and I saw a vegan restaurant and I I thought I should go in, you know, Carol would want me to go in, but I did not know what to order. And I said, well, don't, don't be afraid, you know, go in and say to the wait person, the wait staff, well, what's your special? What have you had that you recommend? And, uh, you know, but I thought, here's someone who actually is thinking about trying a vegan dish, but doesn't know even how to enter a vegan restaurant. Mm. Which is really ironic, considering how if any vegan I know encountered someone who said, I'm curious about trying vegan food, what should I do? They would be thrilled. (laughs) You know, like I know I would be bringing free samples of things and just, you know, advocating as much as possible. Yes. And one thing I do is I actually contribute a vegan recipe to the Dallas uh, street newspaper every month. Because it, you're trying to reach all these people. So every once in a while, I'll find out that somebody actually is cooking from it. But I like the irony that I'm actually reaching out to the Dallas public who support, you know, this venture by having a vegan recipe in it every month. Yes. Um, but see, I think that that, I mean, back to pro- the, the problematics of progressives. We... We all of us have difficulty conceptualizing how to change. And basically, I, I think about a, a, a theologian I read when I was in divinity school, Paul Tillich, The Courage to Be. And what I learned from him, and I realized it during a time in the 80s when I was very involved in a housing battle. We were fighting for integrated housing in an upstate New York community that was just a heartbreaking and difficult experience, but I learned and gained so much from it. If I had known, say, when I started that I was going to be talked about on the local radio and eggs would be thrown at our window and anonymous letters would be sent to my partner's church and, you know, other things, I, I might have thought, gosh, do I really want to go through that? But But the genius of activism is... You just have to take the first step. You take the first step into a vegan restaurant, take the first step into thinking about, well, uh, you know, how does this, how does banning abortion actually affect women? Take the first step and you accumulate courage by having made a step. And then from the new place you're at, you think, well, what's the next thing I have to do? Oh, well, and then it becomes more obvious. It's, it's like dipping the oar of the canoe into the water. You you dip the first paddle in, and then you dip it to the other side. And people anticipate all the issues that might come up. But when you're on the path, all you have to do is take one more step. Mm-hmm. And you, you grow from that. That is uh, words of wisdom for life, right? Like just in general. <laughs> There's a book. Are you familiar? I I don't even know how to pronounce this guy's name, but I love his book, uh, Chogyam Trungpa. He wrote um, uh, the 
Oh, I can't think of the name of it now. I love this book so much. Anyway, he talks about fearlessness in the book. He's a um, he's a Tibetan Buddhist who brought the sort the Shambhala um, right. meditation it's, it's practice. Tibet, yeah, the yeah. Tibet way of. Uh, I mean, I've I've read several of them. Oh, but... it's called Shambhala, the Sacred Path of the Warrior. There we oh, go. okay, yeah. No, I don't know that one specifically. But he talks about fearless fearlessness, um, not not being the absence of fear, but basically, and this is my paraphrasing of it. it it's instead putting the oar in the water. You know, like not right. not being afraid to move forward in spite of being afraid. Right. I mean, the courage is. I think that, for instance, to take it back to veganism, we get this whole thing about courage and strength and a sort of fixation or fetishization about our men masculine if they're vegan. And and, and so we get this very perverse notion that strength is X or it's defined in a very limited physical way. I think strength is the courage to be compassionate. And all we need is sufficient courage to be compassionate today. That courage isn't knowing what's going to happen and doing it anyway. It's not knowing and doing it because it's something you believe in, which is also a helpful way of thinking about activism. That activism isn't, uh, the success of activism isn't measured by whether I prevail or our group prevails or our cause prevails. Because if you measure it by that, there there's a lot of depressing <laughs> moments in life. Uh, because it's very hard to prevail against the dominant culture. But if if activism is about acting according to your beliefs, because that is the right and proper thing to do, to be actualized and to be able to step out of the world knowing that the difference you make is to not be quiet about violence and oppression, then simply making that your goal, a process of witness, perhaps that keeps us from being overtaken by either grief or disappointment. Mm. Yeah. Focusing on, uh, what there's a, there's a, um, recovery phrase, uh, from the 12 steps about doing the next right thing and letting go of the results, which seems to apply in this space too, just knowing that the next right thing for me is to speak up at a a particular place where I feel like I need to say something um, and letting go of, you know, being afraid of what happens. (laughs) Right. But also being sensitive to when that speaking up happens, Mm. you know, uh, the whole thing about solidarity in a progressive movement is that we, you know, we don't just, join a group whose main concern is a form of human injustice and say, yeah, well, what about the animals? I mean, we, we have to be very conscientious that first we, we align ourselves and uh, identify what is the primary emergency that this group is, is trying to challenge 
And if our primary emergency is, is what's happening to animals, we have to recognize that we have to, a dialogue is possible, but we can't just go in and impose and say, no, no, your primary emergency is the wrong primary emergency. No, it's not racism. No, it's not, you know, prison injustice. No, it's, it's not the crisis of refugees. It's this. Um, we don't make ourselves very welcome. Uh, learning, I mean, learning, learning how to be in solidarity is one of our challenges, I think, as vegans. And to be in solidarity with everyone, not just yes. other vegans. Yeah, that 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 is. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I was about to just restate what you said. Uh, <laughs> so I stopped myself. There was something you said that uh, when you mentioned Arnold Schwarzenegger, it sort of like set off a flag in my mind because he just recently came out in the past day or two saying uh, advocating for eating fewer animals. Right. Um, he, he is perhaps a caricature of masculinity in a lot of ways. So when I think about that and, and in, the, in the sort of frame of your book and the sexual politics of meat, and, also, and that feeling you said uh, in the beginning when we first started talking about um, feeling like this book was more relevant than ever, is that for, coming from Arnold Schwarzenegger maybe an indication that some things are shifting? <laughs> oh yeah well i mean of course i thought about him as uh, cheating on his wife uh so particularly a troubling aspect um is that he cheated on his wife while he was a governor so even saying his name made me sort of swallow <laughs> at the same time right it, it might be too soon mm-hmm. to to know that it would be great if the caricature of a caricature, you know, because I think masculinity in itself is a caricature uh, uh, of, of of what it is to, to live. Mm-hmm. Um, if all of this were sort of, you know, wouldn't it be great if it were like the Wicked Witch of the West? You know, all you need is a little water and it just sort of deflates uh, and, and, and we emerged into a world that wasn't obsessed with a, a gender dualistic world. Um, I mean, I think for vegans, the big challenge is, are you going to uphold a gender dualism or are you going to resist it? Well, that's not the, the, the challenge for, for women vegans. I think it becomes, or it's clear that for some male vegans, this becomes the issue and I would like to not see uh the reinforcement of gender dualism or the reversal oh no this is how you're going to be strong you're going to be plant strong well I understand but again I would like to say a say the strength is compassion the strength of compassion and caring is what characterizes us as vegans. It's a non-gender, non-physical kind of strength. So I think the challenge for someone like me is I'm constantly deconstructing. I'm constantly having to interface with 
a world that just seems to want to regressively reassert gender dualism, male masculine dominance. It's, you know, uh, I, I see this in some of the very fraternity-like ads that Burger King and Carl's and Hardee's do uh, about burgers and uh, men. And you, you hear, well, we knew your man card, uh, mm-hmm. up your man card. It's kind of like I've had a library card for 28 years. I've never had to renew it. Why does a man card have to be renewed every day? And, and so I take hope in that, that masculinity is that unstable, that it's, it's requiring this constant re-upping. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing that I've sort of taken uh, sort of secret pleasure in, it's an ad I put in the new edition of Sexual Politics of Meat, something like 358 man points for putting together a grill but minus 461 man points if you cook tofu sausages on it. Well, what does that say except that tofu is so damn destabilizing of masculinity that all the effort you put into a grill is undone by, you know, one (laughs) pound of tofu sausage. That's, and I think tofu standing in for veganism there. That's a kind of, I take comfort in that. Tofu is so dangerous to... (laughs) <laughs> to the dominant culture that, you know, all you need is a little leakage sort of this. It's, it's, a uh, they're looking at the leakages of culture, the, 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 uh, fault lines. Uh, and it's telling us there's a lot of power in tofu. That's an interesting observation. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like a lot of, um, meat, animal, agriculture people must be freaking out. Like, I don't know whether it's because I'm vegan and I just notice all of these new products and how more readily available vegan things are. But do you feel like that is part of the, well, it's not really an increased pushback or is it? I, you've been, you've been observing this much longer than I have. Well, certainly we've, we've had an evolution of um, available products and delicious vegan restaurants. I mean, I think they're, I think they're two different things, but I think these vegan chefs plant in, in Asheville, uh, veg in Philadelphia, blossom in New York. They're, they're really taking, Oh, millennium in San Francisco. They're taking, um, vegan cuisine. They're taking cuisine to a whole new level. And, uh, that's very exciting. I don't even think we know where we'll be 20 years from now, mm-hmm. thanks to the creativity of chefs like those. Um, and I like that because I think meat-eating chefs are noticing. They're changing. They're moving. They're incorporating more of these techniques. In terms of the products, I think it's exciting that there's so many available. But we were we could happily be vegan 25 years ago cooking our lentils and having tofu dishes. Well, certainly we've, we've got so many more wonderful recipes and I marvel at what I'm still learning, you know, like this year, I'm just going to footnote aquafaba. <laughs> oh, I saw your, uh, your post on Instagram with that aquafaba it, pie you were eating. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, there's so much we're learning, 
But I wouldn't want to say that veganism is only about having these commodities available. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly we need to eat and having convenient food is very helpful, especially for activists, because we need to eat well to, to, to keep moving forward, um, taking that next step. So, th- yes, things have changed. But remember, uh, Coca-Cola bought what uh, one of the water uh, like 20 years ago. The minute water, bottled water started selling, Mm-hmm. Coca-Cola is more in the beverage business than simply in promoting Coca-Cola. So they bought the water, I can't remember which water one it was, or the way a dairy bought silk. So if they're in the beverage business, they want to have the beverages that are selling. I, yes, I think I think we're changing. Are we changing fast enough? Are we changing as much as we could. I mean, the interesting thing being in Europe, McDonald's advertises a veggie burger in Vienna. I haven't seen McDonald's advertise a veggie burger in the U.S. yet. I haven't either. why McDonald's? I mean, 20 years ago during the mad cow crisis in Britain, McDonald's had a veggie burger within days available. And yet we still don't have a veggie burger from McDonald's 20 years later. Like, Why? We are running out of time, but I want to make sure that people know where to find you on the internet. Uh, CarolJAdams.com is your website, and it's pretty thorough. Is there anything (laughs) else? Um, And I'll put links to all of these places on MikeyPod.com. So if you're listening, listeners, uh, and you you can just go there to find links. So CarolJAdams.com. What is your uh, name on Twitter and Instagram? Oh, I'm CJA underscore from underscore Dallas on Instagram and Twitter. I'm underscore Carol J. Adams. I love Twitter. I just want to put in that Twitter has, I've had some of the greatest conversations and people from all over the world post new examples of sexual politics of meat. And um, on Facebook, I have a public Facebook page and we've had great conversations there where feminists from all over and vegans, animal rights activists, we we talk about things, and um, I, I love social media. I think it connects us. Uh, I've just come back from Vienna, where I showed the Sexual Politics of Meat slideshow. I met some young women from Budapest who want to see the book go into be translated into Hungarian, and I met a young man who wrote up the whole thing in Persian. Uh, quite a thorough report on the, the slideshow in Persian. So I love the idea that the sexual politics of meat is a tool for understanding oppression in the world. And that what I think sexual politics of meat continues to do, it's not that it, it's that it opens a way of seeing and interpreting the world that gives us a place of strength from which to move. I just talked to a graduate student and she, she just said, I, I, I can't even look at the world the way I used to now that I've read Sexual Politics of Meat. Uh, I, I'm seeing it everywhere. And the fact is, it is everywhere. And to be ignorant of it is to give in to, to a world of, of objectification, fragmentation, and consumption. And that my goal in writing the book was 
for it to be liberatory, for it to uh, give people a liberating worldview that we don't have to accept what is. And people haven't been accepting what is for centuries. And we're part of a great tradition and we're getting stronger, stronger in the the feminist sense. Mm. And um, I am so grateful for what the book has given me and that it has given me associations and connections and ability to learn from such a wide variety of caring people around the world. So I see it as a very dynamic process of entering the world with this book. And now this book is off doing its own thing. And every once in a while, it kind of writes home through a person who's read it. And I find out what it's been off doing. So um, for me, I, I'm sort of stunned by, by its longevity. And I guess I'd say one last thing, which is people who, who want to become vegan and say they don't know how to cook, learn how to cook. And vegans who don't know how to cook, learn how to cook. Mm. Serving great vegan food is one of the gifts we give ourselves and we give everybody else. And it's not a privatized or, or you know, individual thing. It is a way of spreading the kind of joy that comes from living an, a life that's integrated your ethics with your daily behavior. And in a world that's filled with things that can cause us deep grief, to have the joy of vegan food is a wonderful companion. Mm. Yeah, I am 100% with you on that. <laughs> I, I, I didn't cook. Well, I cooked occasionally before I went vegan, but I, I fell in love with it when I went vegan. And partly probably because that I wasn't handling corpses anymore. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it's a lot it's a lot more joyful and fun for me. Well, it's aesthetic, it's creative, it's delicious. It, it, there's so many levels at which we respond to vegan food and uh I just I just think it's a great anchor for living in this world today. It's been a pleasure, like a sincere pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Well, thanks for all your great questions and for being interested in this kind of author.
From the album Friendly Fascism that was consolidated with Unity of Oppression, that song is so great. I love it. Um, yeah. Uh, you should check out the album. Yeah, I think, I don't know if it's available on iTunes still. I think their greatest hits is up there. Um, I don't know if the album is still available. I'm sure you could find it somewhere, though. Uh, thanks to my guest, Carol Adams, for joining me today. And thank you for listening. I uh, mentioned earlier in the show that I'm you know, like trying to... Uh, schedule out all this content that I am releasing. And I need your help. I need your help by sharing, by telling a friend that you like this thing that you're listening to right now, by sending people to my website, by sharing my videos, or by joining my drip page. Um, Everything I'm releasing is free and it will continue to be. Of course, uh, when my album eventually comes out after the show, that's going to be happening in October... (laughs) Uh, that will probably be for sale, but everything else is just free and I'm just doing this stuff. So if you like it and you'd like to support me or support my work at Tamerlane Farm where I'm volunteering, um, for several days a month, uh, sometimes more such as this month where I'll be there over Christmas, um, 
uh, I feel like this work is important that I'm doing and this show that I'm making is important and a great way for you to support it. A couple of great ways. One is that people know what's going on, what I'm doing. And the other is you can simply join my drip page, which uh, gives you access to some exclusive and free content. You can download all my uh, my album and a couple of singles, and I have some things there that are uh, exclusive to Drip. And um, five bucks a month makes a huge difference to me. Um, it, it means uh, making... <laughs> uh, what am I trying to say? I do a lot of work for free, and it's because I want to be doing it, but it would be great if I weren't struggling with money at the same time. So if you could join that Drip page, that'd be awesome. If you can't, that's fine too. Uh, send someone my way. Send them my podcast. Um, having an audience for this type of work is also extremely meaningful. So I'd love to hear from you. MikeyPod at gmail.com. Uh, the website is MikeyPod.com. And um, you can check out my website at MichaelHeron.com to see what else I'm up to. Uh, thanks for listening, and I will see you next Friday. Bye.